This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. Today, we focus on defense. I'm Mimi Gerges. The Pentagon plans to re-examine its global posture review, more specifically the amount of troops that are deployed in Eastern Europe. This review comes as the White House requests more than $3.5 billion to cover operating costs that come with deploying more troops to the already 100,000 in Europe. The funding, if granted by Congress, would also go towards the weapons that the U.S. is shipping to Ukraine. The Space Development Agency awarded $1.8 billion to three government contracting companies on Monday to build a new constellation of satellites. This interconnected network will be made up of 126 satellites in low Earth orbit. They'll serve as the communications backbone for JADC2. The satellites are are set to launch in September of 2024. Army Major General Anthony Potts was announced on Monday as the new head of the Program Executive Office for Command Control and Communications. In his new role, General Potts will be at the forefront of the Army's tactical network modernization, which includes upgrading the Army's various network systems with a budget of nearly $3 billion a year. While the world's attention has been focused elsewhere, North Korea remains a threat, and it's not going away by itself. Just in the month of January, they conducted seven ballistic missile tests. Andrew Yeo is at the Brookings Institution Center for East Asia Policy Studies. Andrew, welcome to the program. Hi, it's nice to be here. So what has the Biden administration done so far on the issue of North Korea? So after its initial review of North Korea policy in early 2021, the U.S. opened the door to North Korea, stating it was ready to meet the North Koreans anytime, anyplace. And they were really hoping for engagement and dialogue, but they've been shunned uh, for months. Uh, South Korea tried to reach out as well, too, but North Korea didn't uh, answer the door when it was knocking. And so at this point, uh, there isn't really that much that the U.S. can do. So the situation has really stalemated. There's really nothing going on uh, at the moment just because North Korea hasn't been responsive. So I want to ask you real quick about the COVID pandemic. What impact did that have on North Korea? And, and what do we know now as far as the situation with that? Sure. So the the COVID pandemic has done more. Uh, I think it's affected North Korea more than uh, really any other event in the last 20 years since uh, the Great Famine in the 1990s because they've implemented a very strict border lockdown. Uh, just to give you an example, you know, 90% of their, tr- uh, their trade has declined by 90% with China, their largest trade partner. Um, they, uh, in terms of uh, sanctions. You know, we've been sanctioning North Korea for years, but these uh, lockdowns are much more effective than uh, any sanction in place. Oddly, though, North Korea claims that they've had zero COVID cases. They said that they've had no COVID cases. And they've actually said, if the rest of the world does what we have done and shut down our borders, then we could have resolved uh, the pandemic. The pandemic could be over, but it's everyone else that's not following the rules. And that's why we, we still, we're still in this situation. So it's very interesting take from the North Koreans on, on Yeah, COVID. I have a hard time with that whole, we don't have any COVID here, because they right. also rejected offers of the COVID vaccines from, yes. from the other, yes. from the rest of the world. Yes. Why, why did they do that? It was quite surprising. Well, I mean, there's, uh, no one knows for sure, of course, we can't read the mind of Kim Jong-un, but 
uh, if, you know, first is if they're claiming there's zero COVID cases, they have a narrative that they have to, uh, you know, portray to the, their people. And so if there would be, uh, it would be awkward to say, well, we have zero COVID cases, but we want uh, shipments of, of vaccines. So that's one argument. But the second is really uh, just, they're very suspicious. Uh, they said, they were very clear that they didn't want Chinese vaccines. They didn't want the Sinovac. They didn't want AstraZeneca. But privately, you know, we know at one point they were very interested in mRNA vaccines, so Pfizer, the, the stuff that the U.S. is making. And so the U.S. actually tried to use that as a way of perhaps opening a channel or a door uh, for humanitarian assistance in North Korea to get dialogues restarted. But you know, they've, they've balked at that as well, too. And now my only guess is you know, they're just hoping to ride out, uh, ride out the pandemic. So I think they are deeply suspicious of outside aid and support. But... Um, but yeah, they've rejected all offers of COVID vaccines up to this point. So Andrew, one thing that you recommend to engage with North Korea is for the U.S. to work with allies, specifically Japan and South Korea. In what right. way? Uh, so in terms of uh, coordination, you know, South, you know, South Korea has been wanting engagement very much with North Korea. I mean, there's going to be Korean elections and we're going to have a new administration coming in. So this is where I think coordination is important because if there isn't, coordination with our allies, South Korea and Japan in particular. This is when the regime begins playing off uh, the U.S. and its allies with one another, where it tries to receive concessions or um, you know, economic goodies from one country while the other is trying to press for sanctions. And so this is why there needs to be discussion among the allies on North Korea policy. Unfortunately, there, there has been good discussion between uh, these three countries. And, you know, you also say that President Biden should take a more personal approach with the North Korean leader. You know, we, we saw a personal approach in the in the last administration. Is that what you're right. suggesting? Not a personal approach in the sense that we go to, uh, you know, zero to 60 with a with a leader's summit. But we do know that uh, Kim Jong-un is open to uh, gestures like personal letters. If you remember the, the love letters between Trump and Kim. So, it does seem that he sees that as a sign of uh, uh, some of respect or standing as a way to open the door. And of course, um, you know that's one one taking this personal approach may uh, may work. It may not. But I my suggestion was that it, it doesn't hurt to just try and see uh, where that leads us to. You know, Andrew, the one thing that North Korea really wants is sanctions relief. Should that be on the table? Yes, that's that's really the million dollar question there to get things started. And, um, you know, this is something where I've, I've changed my own uh, thinking because the, the Biden administration argues that North Korea needs to first demonstrate credible steps towards denuclearization before it can offer any sanctions relief. But we know that that's not going to happen. Uh, the North Korean regime uh, is not going to uh, step back on their nuclear weapons at this point. Um, but there have been some calls now because the situation has stalemated for so long for the U.S. to um, step up and offer the sanctions relief uh, as, a, as a part of an initial package because the U.S. is in a much more secure position than North Korea and it has uh, less to lose. So that was uh, that there has been some voices out there to say that maybe the U.S. should offer the sanctions relief just to see if if North Korea uh, bites on that and see where that goes. But so far, I think the, uh, the administration has been very reluctant to uh, take that step. Well, you know, the cynical reaction is that nothing the U.S. does matters. North Korea will continue to pursue their nuclear weapons program. What's your reaction to that? Yes, I mean, we've this problem has been around for 30 years now. So certainly there's much cynicism and 
and skepticism to be warranted. But, uh, you know, the, the global situation is really changing right now. And, uh, and even inside North Korea, uh, I, I mean, I think the, the one kind of wild card out there is because of these border lockdowns, there's uh, the food situation, there's a food crisis, there's a food, uh, there could be a, a, you know, there could be another famine that's triggered. And that may cause North Korea to pry open the door a bit to seek out, uh, seek out assistance. But, um, but yeah, it's, I really think there has to be some kind of external uh, event or something that would change the calculus of the North Korean regime before we could see um, any sort of progress in, uh, if not denuclearization, at least uh, ensuring that there's uh, peace and security in the Korean Peninsula. All right, Andrew, we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thank you. It's my pleasure. Coming next, how the COVID-19 pandemic might change the way countries approach warfare. Straight ahead on Government Matters, understanding the threat of biological weapons. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Biological weapons have been around for a long time, but the COVID-19 crisis could alter the way countries look at how biological weapons might advance their security. Christine Parthamore is at the Council on Strategic Risks and co-author of a report called Understanding the Threat of Biological Weapons in a World with COVID-19. Christine, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So for the bad actors out there that could be considering developing a biological weapon, what lesson would they take from the COVID pandemic? We're very concerned about that exact question. And so uh, very early in the pandemic, actually, we endeavored to pull together communities of diverse experts, engage how, uh, how they viewed that particular threat and how bad actors and those who are interested in biological weapons might alter their views or their calculations based on COVID-19. And obviously things have played out and gotten ever more devastating over the past few years of the pandemic. Um, what, from our research, what it shows uh, and what we agree with is that um, we're very concerned that countries that uh, may have considered having biological weapons as a strategic weapon, mostly as a deterrent to keep people out of their borders and stop attacks against them, that there may actually be increasing uh, increasing interest in using these weapons as well, potentially at a small scale or in hybrid warfare, in addition to maintaining them as strategic weapons. Uh, we're concerned that uh, as devastating as this has been for national security and eco economies around the world, for the United States and other nations, that unfortunately that might provide a motivation to draw people more uh, to greater interest in these weapons. So globally, has the pursuit of biological weapons been increasing or decreasing recently? Well, thankfully for decades, it was decreasing. Countries like the United States that did experiments in biological weapons in the United Kingdom and others in the past during the Cold War gave those up and stopped the offensive biological research with the advent of the Biological Weapons Convention several decades ago. Uh, as we know publicly, the Russians actually increased their activities after that. The State Department currently publicly assesses that Russia uh, and North Korea may still possess offensive biological weapons programs, and we have concerns about activities by Iran and, and China that might be bordering into the offensive weapons category uh, as well. So we're not concerned about 
many countries having biological weapons, but any countries having them and potentially using them could be catastrophic for the world. So how do you get the data you need for this study? Because I'm sure this is very classified information. It's not like bioweapons program uh, information is going to be in the, in the public sphere. Very little, that's correct. So most of us came from government uh, and have backgrounds in this area, um, though obviously our study is completely unclassified. What we did was uh, took a, a pretty deep and multi-month methodology to mining both history, engaging what a diverse range of experts viewed as the threat. Um, unfortunately, there seemed to be pretty resounding agreement that the devastation caused by COVID-19 for the few countries that were really worried about possessing biological weapons or seeking them in the years ahead, that COVID-19 may have motivated them further in that direction and again, may have them considering potential use. Um, obviously, we, we hope this doesn't come to pass, but with the, the illegal invasion of Ukraine, very concerned about the potential use of chemical or biological weapons in that scenario. Well, did you just look at state actors or did you also research the possibility of terrorists developing and using bioweapons? Uh, a little bit of both. We kept it open-ended, um, but most of our focus was on state-based biological weapons threats. Terrorists have sought biological weapons in the past. Um, certainly, Aum Shinrikyo in Japan and Al-Qaeda and others have sought and sought to actually develop the weapons um, uh, in pursuit of their terrorist ends. Uh, we believe that threat is still there, but we're, we're much more concerned, frankly, about the increasing catastrophic level of a, a full state industrial scale program and what that could do to the world in both upsetting geopolitics and uh, alarming other countries and, it, of course, the potential use of, of such weapons in a dire scenario. So then, Christine, what are the disincentives for bad actors to pursue biological weapons and how does the U.S. create more disincentives? That's a fabulous question. Uh, and we believe our State Department and uh, other agencies are working hard on exactly that. Um, we promote a, 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 an approach called defense by denial, uh, deter, excuse me, deterrence by denial, um, by which we increase our biological defenses and pandemic preparedness in general on the public health side to such an extreme degree that biological weapons, if they were to be used, would not be that effective. So countries would be both risking sanctions and potential retaliation if they were to use these weapons, but also not achieve the ends that they are aiming for. Obviously, the more that we can build the norms diplomatically against biological weapons and unite the world on pandemic prevention, we found that those are powerful things, including, uh, including addressing some of the vaccine inequities that continue to persist around the world so that most countries in the world are convinced that we are better off if we cooperate across nations and work together to reduce all biological threats and make sure no one goes down the path again of biological weapons. All right, well, Christine, we, let's uh, hope that that happens. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Up next, did China know that Russia would invade Ukraine? Straight ahead on Government Matters, the view from China on that war. We'll be right back. China and Russia issued a joint statement of mutual support on February 4th. But how deep is that relationship? And what can we expect from China as a result of Russia's war on Ukraine? Yoon Soon is at the East Asia program of the Stimson Center. Yoon, welcome to the program. 
Thank you for having me. Did China know that Russia would invade Ukraine? Were they given a heads up about it? Well, that's a heatedly, heatedly debated question as for what, whether China was informed. Based on the evidence that we can see, I think the chance of China being informed directly by Putin that Russia was going to invade Ukraine is extremely small. It is possible that Putin said something to the effect of, we have legitimate security concerns and we have to take some actions to address those concerns. But I don't think China was expecting a full-scale invasion of Ukraine as the government officials, uh, Chinese public intellectuals, as well as government scholars and experts have all indicated that they did not believe this was in the cards. You know, the Biden administration officials tried to share intelligence with China, convince them that, that an attack was coming, and they had their own uh, intelligence. Why didn't they believe it? Wasn't it obvious? Yeah, well, that's a very intriguing question, that if the Chinese did not believe American intelligence, they could at least look at the imagery from their own satellites. And the troop movements by Russia along the Ukraine border have been more than conspicuous. But the question is, when China looked at the same imagery, how could they reach, how could they reach a completely different conclusion? I think there, the Chinese traditional military philosophy probably play the most important role. Because for China, if you can coerce another country, you should not invade. If you can use force without war, basically use coercion, to achieve Russia's original agenda, which is to deter the expansion of NATO, then there's no need for Russia to invade. So in that sense, I think Putin's decision surprised, or in other words, shocked a lot of, uh, a lot of the folks, even professionals in China as well. Well, you know, now there has been a full-scale invasion. You're saying that China has been shocked. What, what has the initial reaction been? What can we expect from them? Well, the initial reaction is, well, China was, uh, try has been trying to play as balancing diplomacy because uh, they are not going to come out and directly oppose Russia. Like you said, China and Russia just reached a joint statement at the beginning of February. And that statement committed them to mutual support, but not mutual defense. But the other question that the Chinese will think when they look at the situation in Ukraine is that what is China's biggest national security threat? And in the context of the great power competition with the United States, the Chinese cannot help but feel that, well, no matter what, Russia is a very powerful and useful partner for China in this great power competition with the United States. So when things are put under the framework or through the lens of the Chinese relation, China's relationship with the United States, the Chinese view of Russia just improves significantly. No matter what, Russia is still a helpful and useful partner for China. So that decision or that perception anchors the Chinese uh, responses to the invasion in Ukraine. And that's why they refuse to come out with a much more neutral position in this case. So will China support Russia economically to soften the effects of sanctions? It depends on the definition of support. The Chinese will not consider their normal trade with Russia as support of Russia. They will consider that as normal trade. And they have not signed on, and I don't expect them to sign on to the Western sanctions unless there is a UN Security Council resolution. But then we know that Russia has veto power on the Security Council. So a sanction resolution is not going to pass at the UN. 
So the Chinese will say that all the Western sanctions are going to be illegitimate because it does not have UN authorization. And at the same time, the Chinese also will stick to the position that it is NATO expansion that has pushed Russia into a corner and pushed Russia in this dangerous direction. So the Chinese will argue that while the West, especially NATO, is at least as equally responsible for the consequence today as Russia is. And in that sense, the Chinese will say, well, sanction is not the solution. When was the last time that sanction has worked on Iran or, or North Korea or China for that matter? So um, I don't think China will um, recalculate their decision on the sanctions until they become also the target of that sanction, which is why the secondary sanctions will be most effective in influencing China's calculus. Finally, Yun, do you think this emboldens Chinese aggression towards Taiwan, or is it the opposite? So far, I think it is the opposite, because uh, the Chinese had expected a swift and decisive military victory by the Russians in the Ukraine. But so far, it has not happened. And it has to give the Chinese pause when they look at Taiwan as for, well, maybe the local resistance is not as weak as we had expected, just like in the case of Ukraine. Another aspect of this is when China looks at the diplomatic isolation that Russia is suffering, basically becoming international pariah, and the broad coalition against the Russian aggression from not only develop developed countries, but also from developing countries, that really gives the China scare that if China launches a similar invasion into Taiwan, China would be cut out from the international community as well. That is a worst case, well, not the worst case scenario, but definitely one of China's worst nightmares. All right. Well, Yun, I appreciate you being on the program. We'll continue to watch this as it unfolds. Thank you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us and get the latest updates, reminders, and links to our latest interviews. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now 
managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5 because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016 and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.